Today, on The Lab Report, they give us a second episode, which means a second chance. Oh, we're going to use that chance to talk about stool testing and introduce Genova's flagship product, the GIFX. It's going to be some real content in there, people. It really is. It's going to be fun. Very excited. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome. We're here. Episode two. Episode two. They let us do another one. I know. We haven't even broken anything yet. We haven't broken anything. We still have things to talk about. We have lots more to talk about. Things are looking good. Yeah. It's very positive outlook, sir. My name's Michael Chapman. And I'm Patty Devers. And today we're going to kind of dive into stool testing and talk about the GIFX, which is one of our flagship products. And yeah. so with that, let's talk stool testing, Michael. Let's talk some stool testing. Let's talk about why you would even think about doing stool testing. I mean, right. when did you ever do stool testing? Coming from you know, the ER, coming from the hospital. Clearly in the hospital, we're doing stool testing for acute disease, like diarrhea. We're looking for pathogens. We're looking for bad bugs. But right. Yeah, and a lot of times in primary care, I mean, sure, you're going to have people with acute diarrhea coming in from time to time, but more often than not, you're having people with chronic GI complaints, right? right? And most of those, you're you're not going to find a lot from a C. diff test, a cold blood. More often than not, those are going to come back negative. And so that kind of leads you into this umbrella term of IBS. Right. And... One of the things that's always bothered me about IBS as a syndrome and as an umbrella term is that it doesn't really tell you much about what's going on with the patient functionally. Right. right? In, in essence, these are the patients who've had chronic GI complaints and the primary care doc sends them to the gastroenterologist. They get endoscopy and colonoscopy. It's negative. The gastroenterologist tells them they have IBS, gives them some emodium and wishes them well. And right. that's where the stool tests come in. Right. Because if you're talking, I mean, that you call it a functional bowel disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And so then it leads to the next question, which is, well, where's the, what's the dysfunction? And that's where I think some of these advanced testing, the specialty testing and stool testing in particular can really shine a light on what the dysfunction is. See, this is that missing piece that we talked about in the last episode yeah. that a lot of primary care doctors don't even know exist. Right. But, you know, it's not only these chronic constipation patients or bloating. It's also a lot of other other places you can do stool testing, like skin conditions right. or, you know, the gut-brain axis is real. So all of these people with mood disorders, um, sure. joint pains, migraines. Autoimmune condition. Correct. Right. Exactly. And, you know, when we talk about IBS... That the Rome criteria is about pain, people who are actually in physical pain and pain that does not have an inflammatory bowel component to it. So just think about all the people who have GI pain that could be served by having a stool test and by figuring out what, you know, whether their pain is being caused by a dysbiosis, whether it's a potential pathogen, whether it's more subtle inflammatory markers, could all be different person to person. 
and you get all that information on one stool test. It's a pretty neat tool to have in your toolkit. That's right. And it's not only just finding the root cause. Oftentimes, you identify something that can be corrected and profoundly impact a patient's symptoms in their life. That's personalized medicine right, right. there. That's right. Yeah, because you're, you're getting actionable results, and it's going to change your tre- treatment strategy. But yeah, you know, you get all this information all on one, one facet. And when you're looking for, for GI function, you're going to have to look at the stool because that's the, the most direct assessment. So maybe we should talk a little bit about the GI effects itself and how comprehensive it is. It is the most comprehensive stool test on the market. Right. So the GI effects is the, the flagship's product really here at Genova Diagnostics. And it's the most comprehensive stool test that we have. And it's the most comprehensive stool test that's available. I feel pretty comfortable saying that knowing full disclosure that I'm also working for Genova. <laughs> but I also doesn't make to, it any less true. It doesn't make it any less true. Absolutely. And I think I have my own particular reasons for saying that and why I, I feel so strongly that it's it's the most comprehensive out there. Do you want to voice some of your thoughts around why it's the most comprehensive out there? Sure. Not only do we use many different methodologies, it's not just, you know, one size fits all. There, You need several methodologies to get a broad look at the entire microbiome in the GI tract. We look at markers around digestion and absorption, inflammation, metabolomics. We're looking at the microbiome. We're doing culture. We're doing parasitology. And with that, many different methodologies to capture that entire dynamic. Right. With digestion and absorption markers, we have the most robust set. With inflammatory markers, we have calprotectin. And we not only have calprotectin, we brought calprotectin to the market. So for we, FDA clearance. For FDA clearance. So when a competitor wants to do a calprotectin or another lab out there mm-hmm. wants to do calprotectin, they have to compare to us. We are the standard by which other labs That's need right. to compare. That's yeah. right. When you get to the metabolomic section that we have the most robust set of metabolomic markers, then you get to the, the microbiome part of it and you have 24 different commensal bacteria. We're the only company out there that's doing sort of advanced data analytics on those. And it's because we've been around for so long. You have hundreds of thousands of stool profiles. Right. And patient questionnaires. Right. And so we're doing incredible data analysis. We'll we'll be bringing some of that to the table, to this podcast in the future. Then you get to parasitology. We're the only group out there doing two methodologies. We're doing the microscopic ONP, and we're doing PCR and blastocystis subtyping one through nine. No one's doing all of that. Correct. When it comes to yeast... We're going to probably have some conversations about yeast. Yeah, um, we have lots to talk about with yeast, Michael. We do. Mm-hmm. Yeast is a such a funny, controversial topic. Strangely. And always right? has been. I know. But we're doing a culture for yeast for the benefit of being able to determine sensitivity should you decide to treat a particular yeast. And the same goes for bacteria. Then we're also doing fecal occult blood all your add-ons that you, you might want. Acute um, pathogens, right? Acute pathogens like C. diff, Shiga toxin, E. coli. H. pylori. H. pylori. Right. So it is. It's the, probably the most comprehensive test on the market. Yeah, when you just run down the list, right. I mean, there's nothing that really compares to that. It's not. And where that fits into this whole concept of IBS as an umbrella diagnosis, for example, we talk to doctors every day on the phone, right, Michael? Mm-hmm. And new doctors who have just discovered the GI effects, or you have these recurrent patients with quote-unquote IBS or this chronic GI complaint that come, they run the GI effects, and every day, we have, we have a case we can talk about just about every day, yeah. 
as to where this uncovers an underlying cause of some of these symptoms and things that can be corrected. So, yeah, yeah. Like, let's give me an example well, of something you've heard, Michael. Well, one that comes to mind is uh, there was a, a patient I was consulting with their physician, uh, not the patient. I was talking to the doc, and he was describing this patient as having long-standing constipation, like thirty years of constipation. Mm-hmm. And really had just been relying on over-the-counter medication to deal with it. Wanted to get to the the bottom of where this might be coming from, ran a stool test, and from that determined that there was a high level of methanobrevibacter smithii, the methane-producing bacteria. So there was a suspicion there that methane might be contributing to the constipation. There was also some other indicators and clinical presentation of that seemed to align with a SIBO diagnosis. So the doc decided to treat with an antimicrobial herbal formula. And within days, this person had regular bowel movements again after 30 years. Isn't that something? It's, it was amazing. And, you know, it's, it's stories like that. You probably have similar stories. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Clinician calls and says, I have this woman. She's super anxious. In fact, I think she's a little crazy. She's driving me crazy. She has intermittent diarrhea. And he thought it was just, quote, unquote, nervous stomach because she's so crazy and anxious. We went, I know the feeling. Yeah, we went through the GI effects. And as it turns out, there were some inflammatory markers that were abnormal at EPX. Eosinophil protein X was elevated, which speaks to IgE-mediated inflammation, things like food allergies or parasites, perhaps. Not only was the EPX elevated, but there's also potential pathogens on the test. Oh, okay. So... With that, we give specific sensitivities to potential pathogens. He treated the potential pathogens and then went on to order some food antibody testing. And we talked about how, you know, there is a gut-brain axis. That is real. Yeah. But I think I'd be anxious, too, if I had intermittent diarrhea for years. Sure. Right? Yeah. So with I'd that, be worried what's going on. Right. So with that, that's kind of what this test does. It, it answers questions that you didn't even know to ask. And a lot of times people are coming in for one particular complaint and they realize that there's also these other things. Oh, and by the way, you haven't been digesting and absorbing fats this whole time. So we might have some questions around your fat soluble vitamin status, you know, and those are things that could be a little bit more elusive from a review and clinical history perspective. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, that's just all good information. You know, we talk about some of the other symptoms that you wouldn't immediately think about a stool test. But some of those connections are also coming out more and more every day, like the associations between certain potential pathogenic bacteria and autoimmune diseases. Klebsiella comes to mind, Citrobacter comes to mind, Proteus comes to Mm -hmm. mind, Mm -hmm. where, you know, depending on the particular concentration, you know, how robust they are, that, that could be associated with a particular autoimmune condition, and and you have to wonder about even atopic conditions, whether that's a dysbiosis, whether that's permeability concerns, food sensitivity, reactivity. You know, there's just a lot of different things out there that, that as Hippocrates said, all points back to the gut. Start with the gut. Right. Diseases begin in the gut. Right. Which brings us to the concept of PCR. Which does bring us to the concept. I mean, and you kind know, of. Sort of. And when you think about because on the GI effects, we <laughs> measure the. Com- <laughs> did we just sort of bring it up? I um, led us there, sir. No, Follow me. There you go. No, but on the GI effects, we Take measure charge. the commensals using PCR. Right. And, you know, we throw that word around a lot. Yeah. Race chain reaction. Yeah. Right. What is PCR? PCR, PCR. And we've been doing PCR for a long time. 
Right. The the difficulty with PCR is and always has been you're not talking about live organisms necessarily. You're talking about DNA. And so there's always the question mark about, you know, how much of this is really related to the bacteria that are living or versus what's transient versus what was yesterday. But it's the PCR that actually has helped advance the whole concept of the microbiome because these are all anaerobes that live True. in our GI tract. And so without that, yeah. to culture all of these anaerobes is right. an undertaking. Yeah. So with that, PCR has really pushed this whole microbiome project forward. Right. But it's also why I think you have to be careful with things like yeast, things that are Correct. aerobic, mm -hmm. because if you have a good method for determining what the quantity is, that's, it could very well be a better method than PCR because PCR is not necessarily distinguishing live versus dead. And, you know, have this conversation on the phones a lot where when you do a KOH prep for yeast and we have that order that's available as an add-on to the GIFX, we find positives in about 90% of the samples. And that's just because there's a mycobiome. The yeast right. are supposed to be there. They're living. They're in relative relationship with each other and with the bacteria. And, and also we're eating yeast we're we're right. around yeast they're transient mm -hmm. our body's probably shedding a ton of yeast and so you know the pcr test is is tricky when it comes to yeast but it's, it's useful in its place right and i think that's why the gi effects is important because we use different methodologies right right and in our approach always is to be transparent not do a particular method or technology that we're not in support of cannot fully validate doesn't have the the limits of clinical utility that we set. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm really proud of the products that Genova offers. Right. Because we have those standards. Right. And with that being said, since we've been talking about PCR, mm -hmm. we thought it's probably a good time to bring a really, really smart person on board. Somebody who helped to develop the PCR parasite test for the GI effects. Mm -hmm. Ashley Gibbon, who's manager of research and development here. So this is a segment we're calling Get to Know a Genovian, and today we have Ashley Gibbon from the lab. Oh. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Welcome Ashley. to the podcast. Hey, Welcome. Michael and Patty. Thanks. Hi. Well, we're super excited to have you. Michael yeah. and I talk about this all the time in the sense that most doctors don't know much about methodology or laboratory testing in general. So to it's have true. someone from the lab come and, and talk about this, is, I think it's going to be a huge service. Yeah. So, But before we get into all that yeah. business... Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, why you're here, some of your background? Sure. My name is Ashley Gibbon. I'm the manager of research and development at Genova Diagnostics. I've been here since 2002. What? Yeah, where I started on the bench in parasitology, digging through other people's stool. And since then, I have moved around into every single laboratory department at Genova Diagnostics. So I know a little bit about everything. Most of that time spent in R&D, we are responsible for new product development, for validating our current testing to make sure they meet all clinical and federal and state guidelines. And we do a tremendous amount of troubleshooting when tests do weird things. It's a lot of fun. I get to try lots of different techniques and meet lots of people. Great. I mean, going back to, we were talking about this before, but you know, I think one of the things that's interesting, since you've been through so many different facets of the company, so many different departments, starting as on the bench with parasitology, tell me a little bit about the training that goes into looking for parasites under a microscope. I mean, we talk about on the phones how that's, you know, our technicians are superbly trained at the ability to identify 
parasites and how, how difficult of a task that really is. So can you just speak to that a little bit from a high level? Yeah, and there, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of training that goes into that. Because if you think about what they're doing for every stool sample that comes in, they're making two different slides. They're making a wet prep and they're making a stain slide to see if they can identify any parasite or artifact in there. But there's an awful lot of stuff in poop, right? Like, mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of stuff to wade through. And so being able to tell the difference under the scope between an entamoeba histolytica and a white blood cell is, is critical. And so the, the techs take months to train on, you know, being able to identify what's a parasite and what's not, being able to measure and look at the internal organelles, that kind of stuff to be able to figure out what it is. Right. And it's, it's funny, we have a, a material in the lab that they use for training that's called poop soup. Um, and it's actually literally just a big... Sounds delicious. It's, mm, it's a, just a mix of different parasites, but they use it for training. So that it's very rare to get a patient that has three or four parasites in it. But for training purposes, having two parasites right next to each other on the scope is right. very helpful for differentiation. But it takes months to get up to full proficiency yeah. in parasitology. Yeah. And maybe it'd be a, sometime another get to know Genovia in the future to bring Jim on and talk a little bit more in depth. I think one of the things that we always hear is a lot of times patients will think that they have a parasite because they saw something in in their sample and they send it in and a lot of times it's a vegetable fiber or something like that and i know <laughs> we're always getting pictures alongside <laughs> right. and sending those over to jim that's right say jim take a look jim's got a lot of good stories on that i'm sure he does <laughs> right right but before you came in we were actually just introducing the gi effects as our flagship product and we had a discussion about pcr and how we use pcr to measure the commensal bacteria and now parasitology and Although it seems pretty basic to you, we're hoping maybe you can give us just a little primer on what is PCR? We throw that around a lot, polymerase chain reaction. Primer. No, she threw primer primer in there. Ooh, Ooh. see what I did there? (laughs) That's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're hoping maybe you could just kind of give us some basics of what PCR entails. Yeah, sure. So PCR is polymerase chain reaction, like you said. It's a pretty standard molecular biology technique. And there's a lot of different versions, a lot of different ways to do it and variations. But at its core, all PCR is detecting DNA in a sample. And so if you think about what DNA is, it's a double-stranded helix. We all learn that in biology. But what that means really is that you've got two single strands of nucleotides and they're bound together in complementary strands, sort of like a zipper. And so if you think about it as a zipper, it's two strands with the teeth of the zipper being individual nucleotides. And those nucleotides are really what we're interested in because those are that's your genetic code. Those The teeth of that zipper is what codes for all life on Earth. So I'm going real deep here. That's good. good. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> so in the lab, we want to be able to read what is the sequence of those nucleotides, what is that DNA sequence. And so PCR is one of the many techniques to do that. So what we do is we've got this DNA strand, and we heat it up to about 95 degrees Celsius, which is super hot. And what that's going to do is break the binds between those two strands. It's basically unzipping that zipper. Mm-hmm. So then the nucleotides are exposed so we can read them. So what we do is we use these instruments called thermocyclers, which are exactly what they sound like. Thermo for heat, cycler for cycling. It's actually not a very creative name, I guess. <laughs> so we're but it th- sounds really cool. It sounds really cool. <laughs> Futuristic. <laughs> right. So we put it in the thermocycler. It heats it up to 95 degrees. That zipper unzips. So now we have two single strands of DNA. And then we throw a whole bunch of nucleotides in. We cool it down. And the nucleotides bind to the original single strands to now make another copy of that original strand. So we're using 
we're unzipping that zipper and then using the single strands as like a primer, <laughs> mm-hmm. a, a primer for building, yeah, <laughs> for building another copy of that DNA. So whereas we started with one strand of DNA after the end of one cycle, we now have two strands and we do it again. And then we have four strands and we do it again and we have eight strands and on and on and on so that it, there's exponential growth. So after 30 to 35 rounds of cycles of thermocycling, you end up going from one copy of the DNA to millions of copies, which is a lot easier to detect. So that's sort of the basics of PCR. On an assay like the parasitology one, we're looking for a very specific region of the DNA. So Mm -hmm. one of the advantages of PCR is that it's highly specific to whatever organism you're looking for. Right. And that's the nucleotides, right? So the the particular nucleotides that you're looking for, that's going to be what you determine or that's unique to the particular organism of interest in the particular primer. Absolutely. Right. right. It's, it's unique to that one, you know, whether it's species or phyla or whatever you're looking for, they're all going to have that, that nucleotide sequence. Right. And you amplify it so that it's not in such small quant- quantity, you can't find it. Correct. You can see it in and amongst all the other stuff in the I school. got it. You got it. Nice. <laughs> right. So and in the case of that's exactly what we do in development when we're starting a new PCR is we say, how specific do we want to get? Do we need to go to the species level? Do we need to go to the genus level? And we know this, the genetic codes for most organisms now, right? So we can go into, say you're looking for cyclospora and say, what region of DNA for cyclospora is is present only in cyclospora and it's not going to be found in anything else that you're going to find in the human stool. And then we now have basically like a target. And so when we do the PCR reaction, we unzip it and we send in the nucleotides that mat- that will only bind to the cyclospora, that region of the DNA. And so then we know that we're only amplifying cyclospora and we can see everything else in there. And right. if there's no cyclospora present, we'll get no amplification. Yeah. The other cool thing is, is that once we're that's the primers is what that little sequence of DNA, the little target, it's called a primer. It's, we've also put in something called a probe. And a probe is also specific just to the organism of interest like the cyclospora. Mm-hmm. But the difference is that the probe has a little fluorescent tag on it. So it means that we, that's the way we can detect it. So the PCR amplifies it and that the other end we need to detect it. So if you've got cyclospora and suddenly we've got a million copies of them, they all have this one little fluorescent tag, then we can read them on the detector using a UV detector. Right. Yeah. I mean, being as close to the development and knowing it as well as you do, I'll just give you, you know, there's a lot of conversation out in the field in our community, functional medicine community, that PCR is, you know, is the most sensitive thing on the market. So can you speak to that with respect to the, the question of why, why not do PCR for everything? Yeah, and it's a great question. It is a very highly sensitive test. It's also very highly specific, which is nice. You, you, you're only going in looking for Giardia, or you're only going in looking for Histolytica. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff in stool. And so there's also a lot of things that inhibit that PCR reaction that might stop those nucleotides from binding and that sort of thing. In fact, when we were doing our initial development, we were noticing that there were samples where we could see them on the microscope. We could actually see the organism, but they weren't amplifying on our PCR reaction, which was very strange. Mm-hmm. And in doing more research in the literature, we found that this is actually quite common, that there's a lot of inhibition in the stool. In fact, some of the other products that are on the market that have FDA clearance in their FDA submission have, have documented that they see inhibition as much as 15% of samples, which means 15% of samples, there's something in that stool sample that's stopping that PCR reaction from happening. So there's a lot we were able, as part of the development, to sort of figure out how can we mitigate that and how can we control for it. How do you overcome that? Or can you completely overcome that inhibition? 
In some cases, no. One of the unique things that we did for our assay is that we included something called an internal control, is what we call it. And so it's a synthetic sequence of DNA. It doesn't exist anywhere in the world. We totally made it up. And we add it to every single sample at the, the front end, at a certain quantity, and then we can test it on the back end. And so what this does for us is if there's any inhibition in the stool, that control will also be inhibited. And so it's a way for us to measure not only is there inhibition, but how much it's present in the sample. And if there is inhibition in the stool, then we, in a lot of cases, we can dilute the sample and run it again. And the nice thing about dilution is that it'll dilute out the inhibitors. The risk, of course, is that you're then also diluting out your analyte of interest. Mm-hmm. So so there, there's ways to work at it. What I'm very proud of in this assay is that we know there's inhibition and we have a direct way of measuring it and then yeah. accounting for it. Yeah. If you didn't have that sort of internal control that you're using, what would it look? How would you know that you're having inhibition, or would you not know? Would you just get a negative? Yeah, you, there's no way you would know unless you were measuring for that. Is Especially it, in something like a parasite, where most patients don't have parasites, so getting a negative parasite resp- result is as expected. So you wouldn't have a reason to question it. Is right. it is it po- is it possible to get false positives on a PCR? It, well, like if you're overcycling or over amplifying it. Yes, there is, yes, not on our assay. Ah, <laughs> but in general. In, in general, general, yes. So as far as PCR reactions go, you know, I was talking about that. You heat it up, unzip it, throw in the nucleotides, zip it back up again over and over and over again. What we found and what's very well published in the literature is that there is a point at which if you go 40, 50, 60 cycles, if you let it go long enough, you will amplify something. It just has to do with the the inconsistency of the reaction. And so that was also part of the validation process that every lab has to go through is at what point do you have a signal that you're confident is the organism of interest? And at what point do you have amplification that is actually just an artifact or some sort of contamination? I mean, we have, we had tests that we ran just pure sterile DNA samples, you know, just DNA free, sorry, just pure sterile water, and we took through the cycles. And after enough cycles, it would start to pick something up that wasn't actually wow. there. So, so how do you know what what that point is? Are there generalized, accepted standards of laboratory rules for PCR? Or no, there's nothing exactly published or standardized. It's really up to every lab to determine what that is. But as part of the validation, again, we'll run a lot of blank samples, see what that looks like, a lot of water samples, and then a lot of actual true positives that we know have the parasite at very low levels to sort of figure out where that differentiating point is. Yeah. Seems like kind of a tricky middle ground because when you dilute, you have, you run the risk of increasing your false negatives. And if you try to overcompensate that by doing additional cycles, then you run the risk of additional false positives. So you really have to kind of find the right balance. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. Okay. Which is what makes our test pretty interesting because we have that backup, right? We have the microscopy backup to look for parasitology. Yeah. And I mean, do you think at any point you would see the PCR aspect just replace microscopic LNP? Or, or what have we seen, I guess, so far since we have both of them? I can't imagine a scenario where one would replace the other. I mean, I think we were when we were launched, we first launched it, we weren't quite sure what to expect having both. But what we found is that it's really the combo that gives us the biggest bang for our buck. Because there are certainly patients where we, we get a positive PCR result, but we didn't see it on the microscope. And that could be because it's at very, very low levels. It could be that the organism is not viable. It's just broken up and it's just pieces of histolytica in there. It could be, you think about some of these parasites. I mean, they want to live in your gut. They want to stay up in there. Those giardia have those great big suckers on them that, you know, hang onto your intestine. And so... Giardia. Giardia. 
you know, the Giardia. Yes. <laughs> and so they want to stay in your gut, right? So they're not going to be coming out every time you s- submit a stool sample. So <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah, how do you say that? So we call that periodic shedding. So if you have organisms that aren't going to come out every time you go to the bathroom, the genetic might, material might still be present even if we can't see the organism. But then on the flip side, we had situations where we had samples where we could see it on the microscope. We knew it had blastocystis in there, but we didn't get a hit on the PCR. And that we that's led us down to the path of the inhibition and right. what else could be right. causing it. Do you think it's also possible, because we were talking about this the other day too, how the PCR test is not really assessing eggs or, or cyst form of these parasites. Is that another potential problem for not having a microscopic OMP? Is that if if that's the main form that you're going to detect a parasite that you're you're not going to get that with PCR. That's right. I mean one of the one of the strengths of PCR is its specificity to the individual organism, but at the same time, you're only going to see the ones you go in for. So, you know, right now we have six target organisms. We're not looking for anything other than those six. Whereas in an ONP, when you've got somebody actually sitting at a microscope looking at a slide, they're looking for everything. They can see not only the protozoans and amoebas, but they could see worms, they can see eggs, they can see cyst forms, they can see all those things that aren't going to be picked up by PCR unless you have a specific PCR test for every parasite in the world, which is would be right. a lot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you also have the problem with things like worm worm eggs that, you know, typically when we find worms in parasitology, we don't actually see the worms very often. Again, there's in your intestine. They they want to stay there. They want to stay there. So what we see on the scope is usually the eggs and eggs are made by, you know, by definition, they want to come out and get in the soil and pass on to another host, right? So those eggs have these nice, hard, crunchy shells that keep all that DNA inside. So it's really hard, you know, from a PCR point of view, you have to do a lot more upfront work to make sure that those eggs get cracked, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. so that you can get the DNA out of it and measure it by PCR. So, you know, worm eggs are a little bit trickier. Is PCR. that something that we've looked at as far as cracking those eggs? or We've definitely evaluated it. It's, you know, there's a lot of techniques out there. Yeah. But right now, the, the parasitology, the OMP, the scope is still, I think, the easiest way to find it. And odds are we're going to see it under the microscope anyway. Yeah. Right. right. They're big and obvious looking. Yeah. You see cool. Right. I think I have one last question, Ashley Gibbon. Do you like sandwiches? I do like sandwiches. Do you have a favorite sandwich? I've got a lot of favorite sandwiches. Go I think, ahead. <laughs> I think I'm a sucker for a really good gourmet grilled cheese sandwich. Wow. <laughs> There's a place in Asheville wow. that does like really fancy grilled cheeses. What kind of cheese? You, I was going to ask you, that. Yeah. Is like a specific cheese or just American cheese? Not American. No, you got to get kind? interested in that. Well, the, this, this place I was thinking of, they have a, it's a smoked Gouda pimento mm. cheese. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Now you're cooking with some heat. There That's you go. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you so much for joining us. I really feel like we got to know a Genovian today. I do too. I think that re- went really well. I hope everyone feels like they got to know and a Genovian. And I learned so much. And hopefully- Actually, it really is a service that you've just provided to many clinicians who don't fully understand PCR. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. It was fun having you. Thanks, Yay. Ash. That was awesome having Ashley here. It really was. I think I learned so much. We are going to learn a lot with this podcast. Maybe she should be the one doing the podcast. <sighs> She should. <laughs> but it was it was very nice having her here. Yeah. And that brings us to the last little bit for today, which is the question of the Yay. day. Yeah. So the question of the day is if I'm doing a GIFX stool test, mm-hmm. do I need to discontinue my probiotics, my digestive enzymes, my supplements? That's a great question. And we actually 
get that frequently, both in email and in consults? And the answer is that there's a very important distinction between certain medications and supplements which directly interfere with our ability to do the assay versus things that would influence the results, right? Right. right. And so we often send people to the collection pack instructions for the stool test, which will list the direct interference. I mean, there are specific things you can't, we can't read the assay if you're taking that supplement. Yeah, it doesn't work. Bismuth, right. But there are a lot of supplements and medications that people take that don't need to necessarily be stopped, Right. right. Some people want to keep their patients on chronic medications and supplements because they want to see the efficacy of their treatment. Right. Yeah. Um, so y- yeah. if you're taking a digestive enzyme and that's helping you to digest and absorb your food like protein, fats, then that might influence the result. And that's good to know, but it's not going to interfere with it. Right. And so really, it's kind of up to the clinician as far as whether to discontinue or not. Sometimes clinicians will have people remain on their probiotics because they want to see what the microbiome looks like with them on the probiotic. They want to see if the digestive enzyme is the right dosage, whether it's helping them break down and absorb protein, fat, things like that. And I will say, like I said, you can refer to the collection pack instructions for those things that need to be stopped. But we also have something called the test prep page, which people don't often know about. If you go to the product page for the GI effects off to the right under additional resources, there's a link to the test prep page, which outlines how certain supplements and medications can influence results and what you might expect to see. Like I said, it's a pretty common email we get and it's all right there on the website. Very good. Very good. And that about wraps it up for episode two. A lot of great content today. Good content. How are you feeling about episode two? I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling much smarter actually. Okay. What does that feel like? I don't know. (laughs) It hurts. All right. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hey, Michael. Uh huh. Did you know everything we talk about on this podcast, the lab report? Is we talk to- about a lot yeah. of stuff on this podcast so far. <laughs> Episode two, baby. You know it's meant to be educational, right? Oh, what do you mean? It's not to replace your doctor or your clinician or any medical advice you might really need from them. Oh, it's for educational purposes. That's right. Okay. Understood. Cool. Thanks for clearing that up. You're welcome. Next time, on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about the commensal bacteria, dysbiosis, and what to do with all those things. There's something else, though. What? Next episode, we're going to announce some big news. Big news? Yeah. Ooh. Stay tuned. That's exciting. I know. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.